You may or may not follow religious news. You may or may not follow uh, what goes on in the culture of uh, Christian media. Uh, some people like it. Some people don't. Uh, understandable on both sides. Uh, but in recent years, there's been a resurgence in the interest in exorcisms and demonic possessions as around the world as well as here in the United States. I don't watch reality TV. I think it's an oxymoron, reality TV. Uh, but there apparently is a new series. It's getting some uh, coverage on exorcisms. Uh, if you want to watch that kind of thing, whatever winds your watch. Uh, I put it in the same category as ghost hunters and Bigfoot and those type of things. I think it's a, a complete waste of time. A semi-amusing waste of time, but I think it's a waste of time. Um, it does not mean that demon possession or harassment or demonization is fictitious, however. I don't want to sound trite or um, cliche. I do think there are realities there that we may or may not know or understand. But uh, this text today takes us into a passage Luke's just read that embraces this and confronts it head on. So we want to look at this text this morning. Let's go to the other side of the sea. What does it mean to be demon possessed? What does it mean to be harassed? And more importantly, what is Mark as the gospel writer telling us in this story, in this part of the narrative about uh, Jesus Christ and his power over the demonic? Now the story ties back to Mark chapter 4, if you have your Bible. Mark chapter 4, verse 35, where Jesus gives them the instruction, uh, as evening is coming, let us go to the other side. And then we have one of these Mark and sandwiches. So we've got this little information piece and then there's a story that happens in the meantime and then chapter 5 verse 1 they've come to the other side of the sea and Mark's way of writing story and leading us into intrigue and interest these marking sandwiches these devices so here we have this sidebar we looked at last week about Jesus stilling the water of the Sea of Galilee and now we're entering into the Gerasene demoniac realm. Chapter 5 verse 1 is the only time the word they is used, not to get too pedantic or too specific here, but the apostles, the 12 that are with him, are going across the Sea of Galilee but they're only referenced there's no discussion with the 12. There's no Q&A. There's no what about this kind, Jesus. They're just observers. And I think that's important in the way Luke writes this storyline. Uh, he wants us to know they're present, but in a way they, just like you and me, are watching something that is pretty unbelievable. It's astonishing. In fact, one could argue this is uh, might be even more terrifying, more frightening than his ability to control the sea storm that they had just been delivered from. So they're simply observers. They're going to watch what this Jesus can do. Now, we're going to the side of the Sea of Galilee. Most of Jesus' life occurs on the northern, northwestern part. We're going to the eastern side, and we've got one slide we want to show you to give you a rendering of what this is like, because when you go to Israel, you're going to see some of this. Um, and this is sort of looking a little bit on, the Sea of Galilee is shaped like a harp, and so Jesus is on this side of the sea most of the time on the northern part, and we come down just a little bit south and directly to the east. And that shoreline, about six to eight miles of it, would be the area of the Gerasenes, the Gadarenes, Gadara. It's written differently in the, in the Gospels, as many of these words kind of run together because of language, language issues. But so this is a side of the Sea of Galilee he doesn't spend hardly any time on. 
fact, the only real record we have is the Gadara Gerasenes, this demoniac experience where he goes onto this side of the sea. So when we drive on that side of the Sea of Galilee, we'll stop and we'll say somewhere around here it may have happened. Uh, now, the sea, of course, is reduced quite a bit over the two, three hundred years. And so we, we can envision, let's say, conservatively, 50, maybe 150, maybe 200 feet more in elevation of water. But even at that level, the sea is a lake, not like we think of a sea in our, in our way of measuring things. At the widest point today, it's about seven and a half miles and about not even quite 20 miles from top to bottom. So it gives you an idea of the countryside. Mark keeps the narrative moving. Notice verse 2, he says, Immediately when they arrived, a man comes up to meet him. Now in Matthew, we have two men approach him. And liberal scholars have a field day with these variances in gospel records. They get all upset and all up worked up because, well, it's two there. It's only one here. Is it two stories? Are they inventive stories? Um, we have no way of definitively proving uh, what's going on here. But the most common sense uh, solution, I would argue, is simply that Mark focuses on one main individual. That doesn't mean there weren't two people there, but Mark's record is interacting with one person. If you were to get 10 newspapers from around the country today that followed the, uh, let's say, the protest last night, you'd have a lot of different stories being told about the same event or events. And so the lens of the writer sometimes is going to focus in. Obviously, this isn't a newspaper. This is God's Word. But the, the gospel writers are focusing in differently with different emphases, just as the Holy Spirit intends. What Mark does tell us, he's going from tomb to tomb, underscores the unclean nature of his living. Uh, tombs were naturally uh, caves in the rock. If you were in this area of Galilee, if you're in the area of Israel, you don't dig down a, a grave that's six feet down and so forth and so on. You just can't do it. It's rock. And so what they would do in hillsides where there's naturally occurring caves or holes, they excavate those rocks and they put bodies in there. And we've talked before about the way Jews bury the dead anyway. They bury uh, the, bone, the body for a while and a year later they come back and they just take the bones and put them in a smaller ossuary because they just don't have room for them. And it's part of the burial ritual. Again, we're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We read about this man who has a basically supernatural strength. The text goes out of its way to talk about he's able to break chains and shackles both. So he's got a superhuman strength. The text also says he cannot be restrained. What are we getting a picture of? This guy isn't your run-of-the-mill, ordinary, demon-harassed individual. He's superhuman. He's powerful. Man's best can't restrain him. Man's metal can't can't confine him. And so he's able to run crazy. In fact, the word shouting is a threatening term. It's a violent term. It's not just like he's pulling his hair out, shrieking in mortal torment. It's a violent description of a guy who can't be chained, can't be shackled, can't be bound, and he runs around constantly day and night. The word cutting himself with stones in your Bible literally means to lacerate. So there's a lot of demonic description in what he's doing, living in caves, harassed by demons, superhuman, lacerating himself. All this lends to a, a pretty over-the-top, let's say, miserable existence for this individual. Well, the God-man appears in verse 6. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. Um, 
the description is hopeless and terrifying. And when Christ comes on the shoreline, he runs up and bows down. Now, there, there's tremendous speculation by commentaries and, uh, commentaries and scholars and people who, who all they do, they're bookish people who study these things. And no one has the definitive answer on why is he bowing down. He's not worshiping Jesus. The demonic realm doesn't run up to worship Jesus Christ. Um, does he bow down uh, pejoratively in front of Jesus? I mean, we have the temptation accounts where uh, Satan compels Jesus, bow down and worship me. So what's going on here? Now, this is, this is my write-it-in-pencil, borderline heresy idea, okay? It's not, it's not bulldogmatic, it's just my idea. I think when, he, when the demonically possessed man comes up to Christ, Christ's very presence drives the guy down. Can't prove it. It's just a sense I get from the storyline. It's just my opinion. It's all this is an opinion. But when this supernaturally empowered, demo, superhuman, demonic force comes up before Christ, just Christ's presence drives the guy down. Because they're in submission to authority. And this whole storyline is about the authority Jesus has over the sea. Now he's got authority over the spiritual realm, over the demonic. So he's face to face. He's a violent nature person. The confrontation is he's dropped to his knees. But there's a conversation that ensues. What business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high. The word business is a fun English rendering because it's really what, what transaction do we have? What's going on between us right now? Why are you here would be the implication. What's this all about? And there are a lot of conjectures, again, on what the question is asking. Um, first of all, let's talk about the address of this demonic person to Jesus. Son, Most High God is one term, but then we have this addition of Son of the Most High God. If we go back to Genesis chapter 14, it's the first time we see this language. The language emerges because Yahweh Elohim is superior to all gods. Most high isn't just a superlative title like you're the most high, you're the most important one. This, this is, you have demonstrated yourself as the supreme God. Now remember, Genesis is prior to the Exodus account. So before we have all the Egyptian gods that fought against Yahweh Elohim and his people. So this most high begins there. Then the appendage of God is a recognition that there's one there is a most high, singular, monotheistic God. But then we have the demon calling him son of the most high God. What we're meant to see here is the demon gets, this is the God man. The demon understands this isn't just an interesting guy that's performed some miracles across the other side on the western shore of Galilee. That when he comes to the Gadarenes, the Gerasenes, Hello, this, this one is the very Son of God. He's the Son of the singular, the Most High God. So it's very interesting in Mark's record and in the demon's response. When he sees this Christ, he falls down in a bowing, humble position, and he identifies him as Most High God, the Son of the Most High God. Now, it's interesting to me that the demon implores him I implore you by God. So the, the, the discussion here, remember the Satan is the father of lies. So whether it was the temptation accounts and how Satan tried to trick or deceive or tempt 
or lure Jesus into overstepping the role that he had come to do and to do things that Satan wanted him to do? Or is it this game we're seeing, gamesmanship between the, the fallen angels and Jesus Christ are all left to speculation? But what we do see is a language developing in this section of Mark. Four times you're going to see the word implore if you use the New American Standard Bible. The first word is a different word, but the four, this one being the first one, are the same word. I'll show you this as the story unfolds. What business do we have? David Brown writes it this way. Behold the tormentor anticipating, dreading, and entreating exemption from torment. The one who's harassing this individual is now approaching the God-man and he's trying to prevent himself, the tormentor, from being tormented. Well, Jesus commands and confronts him in verse 8, for he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Um, then we have this cryptic comment that Jesus says, um, he asks him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion. Now, this is a conjecture on all kinds of parts as to why does Jesus ask the guy his name? We don't know. That's the answer. Now, I will suggest this. He's not talking to the man. He's talking to the demon. Don't miss this. This is not an interaction with how did you become demon-possessed? How did you become, a common term today is demonized or harassed by demons. They talk about it in this language. He doesn't say, how did you get in this state? He's talking to the demon, and he asks him his name. And the demon responds, legion. Legion can mean literally 6,000 soldiers. And then, of course, liberal scholars go a little crazy with this. Well, there's 6,000 demons, and there's only 2,000 pigs. See, it's wrong. That's, you know, that's what liberal scholars do. They worry about things like that. God bless them all. What's happening here is, could it be bravado? Could it be that this satanic influence over this man, who is superhuman in strength, he can break bonds, he can break chains, he can't be restrained. Could it be when he confronts the Christ and the Christ asks him, what's your name? He says, Legion, you know, however you want to sanctify the imagination, guess. Is that going to frighten Jesus? What's it going to do to the observers? The observers know this guy. In fact, the other synoptics, Matthew and Luke, talk about avoiding this area for fear of this guy. It wasn't just that he was a screaming, maniacal person. He was violent, and they were afraid to travel in that area. So here we have this expression, legion. Maybe it's because there's thousands. Is that really the point? The point is a show of force. Who's God? The demons already acknowledge he's son of the Most High God. Jesus is the God-man. Now, the Jews believed you had to know a demon's name to exercise the person. So you had to find out the per demon's name, and then you renounce that demon by that name, by the power of Christ. On and on and on. Jesus doesn't employ that methodology. So it's always interesting to see how man will take a passage and take it a little further than it really intends. Let's just say for conversation's sake, there are more than one demon inhabiting him. They're certainly superhuman in strength. Maybe it's a bragging rights. Richard France says Jesus is not confronted by one demon, but by an army of them. 
That makes pretty good sense. Well, they implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. The first implore word we see is don't send us out of the country. Again, speculation abounds. What, do they just like the, western, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee? Like, this is our lake district. We don't want to go live in the Judean wilderness. Let us hang out here, Jesus. Is that what it's about? And people, people actually do make these conclusions. Well, they prefer tormenting people in that eastern area. That doesn't make any sense at all. It's just conjecture. Again, I'm going to write it in pencil, light pencil, and throw the paper away when you go home. I believe the demons thought, what business do we have? Meaning, this isn't time. We still have time to do our harassing of people and tormenting them. Jesus, you're come, you're all, you are Jesus, Son of the Most High God. But this isn't time. This isn't the end. So don't send us away, meaning what? To some other abyss, to some other existence, to where they can no longer do their bidding as they have freedom under the permission of God to do. A whole other subject matter. So I think they feared their final judgment. Let's put it in that language. And they knew it wasn't time. Well, then they appealed to this herd of swine, verses 11 and following. Now, there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. They implored him, saying, send us into the swine. There's the word implored the second time, so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000, and they were drowned in the sea. We're again on the eastern side of Galilee. Just as a reminder, you probably already know this, but as a reminder, uh, Jews did not herd swine. They were unclean animals. Everything about them was ritually unclean. Uh, everything from, from grazing, feeding, killing, butchering, had nothing to do with swine. So why are we dealing with pigs? We're on the eastern shore of Galilee. This isn't a prominently Jewish area. Uh, Luke read the passage, the last phrase talks about the Decapolis. The Decapolis being a word that loosely means city of the ten, the ten cities. Uh, Deca being that word, ten polis, metropolitan area. We talk about Middle Tennessee, Greater Nashville, right? We're not naming cities. So Decapolis was an area that included a number of leading cities, most of them being on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Because as you went due east, you went into more of a wilderness area. So again, the populations have to be near fresh water. Otherwise, there's no way to survive. So we've got this picture of them uh, earnestly saying, we don't want to go out of the region we don't want to meet our judgment. Hey, there's some swine over here. So perhaps what they're saying is, uh, let us go into something that's already unclean. Now, I don't think they knew the rest of the story that those swine were going to run over the cliff and be drowned. But the image is what I think is striking. Because the water and abyss and unclean all fold into the same thing, being this is another world. When you go to Israel, we'll take you up to Caesarea Philippi. And that'll be where the encounter with Jesus where he says, you're Peter and upon this rock I'll build my church. And up in the north country, when you're up there, he says, "What? and the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against you, against the church. And so when you stand up in Caesarea Philippi, you're standing on this great big rock with all these rocky naves where the Greeks put icons and little god Pan and these little naves they dug in the rock. And there's a cave right there where water comes out. The ancients were fearful of that cave. They thought that's where the demons resided. 
That's where hell came from. Like that's the portal to hell. All the Lords of the Ring nomenclature. When you think of all the caves of Mordor, you know, this is where the demons reside. That's where the imagery comes from. It's ancient. So if that's true, then we've got unclean animals who are going to be inhabited by these demons and drowned in, we might say, their home. They're going back home. They're going back to the abyss where they've come from, where they belong, where they reside. So Jesus gives them permission. They inhabit the, 12, the 2,000 swine, and off the cliff they go. Mark's the only one, by the way, who gives us the number. Well, then we have this back and forth, leave, stay, go home. Verses 14 to 20, let me reread them briefly. The herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed in his right man. It's one of the funniest lines in Scripture to me. Sorry, that's just my weird sense of humor. He's sitting down, clothed in his right mind. The very man who had had legion, and they became frightened. So the herdsmen run, they tell the report in the area. It's unbelievable news. They come out. We get this description by Mark. He's clothed in his right mind. I have a picture of him that he's, he's been showered, shaved, has some clothes on, and he's eating a bowl of soup having a conversation with Jesus, and everybody's freaking out because, wait a minute, this was the guy we were terrified of the last time we heard anything about him. He's no longer naked, no longer cutting himself, no longer living in tombs, and he's, you can have a conversation with him. Fascinating. We haven't heard a word from him yet. The storyline is about the Christ ridding this man of the legion that harassed him, that could not be chained, could not be shackled, could not be overpowered by human strength. And with a word, Christ removes the demons from him. The crowd's reaction, though, is in stark contrast. They're terrified. They're afraid. Why would they be afraid? Why were the disciples afraid when Jesus calmed the storm? Never seen this before. This is beyond our comprehension. This is otherworldly stuff. This is freaky. This is terrifying. And so even those who we would argue, even if they were Jews, they'd be Hellenistic Jews, meaning Greek-speaking Jews, not totally integrated in a Judaistic lifestyle. And they're, they're freaked out that what they're seeing, and they implore him to leave. Look at verse 17. They began to implore him to leave their region. So he does, and getting into the boat. This picks up the sandwich. 435, go on the other side. 5-1 in the boat, other side. Now we're getting back in the boat and we're leaving again. The man who had been demon-possessed, verse 18, was imploring him that he might accompany him. Um, the crowd's reaction, we're terrified of what we've heard about you. We want you to leave. What would happen if he stayed? Why were they so threatened? We can only speculate. We're not told in the storyline. But what the account is very clear about is this. The most stupendous miracle they have ever seen has occurred. And their response is, we don't want anything to do with you. Now think of this in relationship to on the western side of Galilee. When things happen, more and more people come out for a belly to get their bellies filled, to get a miracle. Maybe my son or daughter who's, who's disease, has a disease, or my, uh, my dad who's lame, my mother who's got a hemorrhage. Maybe you can help. And the people, Jesus didn't come to be a 24-7 clinic. He came to save men from their sin. 
So the responses vary from people when they interact with this Jesus. In this case, we don't want anything to do with you. Whether we speculate they've destroyed their economy, it doesn't really matter. The point is, we're afraid. We want you to leave. I just say it as a sidebar. Faith comes by hearing, not by seeing. These people saw, arguably, the most powerful thing they're ever going to see in their life. They want nothing to do with it. Others heard rumor that he could heal a person, and they drag a beloved one to go see him in the hopes that maybe this Jesus can fill fill their belly or heal their illness or condition. And so we have this picture of how people respond to miracles. Let me say it another way. Miracles never convince What does he say to Martha and Mary? Even if someone comes back from the dead, they will not believe. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So our authority is here, not in proving what Jesus does. And that, in some way, should be an encouragement to all of us. Well, the once demonic man now implores Jesus, can I go with you? And Christ commissions the unnamed man. We never know his name. How would you like to be known as the one formerly demon-possessed? It's like Rahab the harlot. I mean, come on, can't we lose the name after a period of time? No, you keep your identity. The man who was formerly possessed, we never know the rest of it. Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. A side note here, the Gentile area is very interesting. What did he tell all of the uh, people on the other side of the Sea of Galilee when he healed them? Don't tell anybody. Now we're on the eastern side. What does he tell him? Go tell. And I think the movement of Mark is giving us a reason for that. Because the eastern side is going to be these non-Jews, these folks that haven't heard much about Jesus, just rumor. The Jews on the western side, he came to his own, his own knew him not. Jesus was controlling the timing of when he's going to let his people know he's Messiah. But on the other side, you can go ahead and tell them great things God has done for you. Go share those with those people on the eastern side of the sea because they're not affected by the same religious political system that would be on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A couple of lessons here, three in particular. Number one, don't open yourself up to demonic influence. I know that sounds like kind of a silly thing to tell you because uh, oh, I never, Michael, I would never open myself to demonic influence. Well, let me suggest there are ways we do it. Um, Cindy and I are not prudes. Um, in fact, some people consider us very liberal, um, but we're not prudes. We, we don't, we're not haters when it comes to certain things, but neither one of us has any lost love for Halloween. Now, Halloween's over, so you don't need to feel any guilt or shame, right? Whatever you did, I absolve you. You're fine. Um, but, but social media is fascinating what people do on Halloween. And it used to be Cindy got into it when the kids were little, and as they got older, um, we're, we're not prude or we don't worry about this stuff, but there's, there's sort, of, sort of an oppression that kind of follows Halloween. And um, this year we did buy like one bag of candy. We, she bought a bag of candy and, um, you know, I hide behind the, the visual, act, you know, the door when they come in. And so she, she had to go, well, anyway. So the doorbell rings and the cute little kid there dressed up like Darth Vader or something fine. You know, whatever, you twine your watch. But anyway, you give them candy. And it was kind of fun this year because we ran out. We actually had like six people knock on the door and we ran out. So then we did turn the lights off and hide. But um, 
beyond having fun with your kids, we, we had churches that did harvest festivals and Reformation days and all kinds of great things. Great alternatives, fantastic. You know, if you want to just give your kids five pounds of sugar, you accomplish the same thing. Here, just eat this sugar and stay home. You don't have to dress up or do anything. But anyway, um, some of the stuff on social media was disturbing. What people do and enjoy for Halloween. And I'm, I'm not saying that is necessarily going to lead to demon rat. It's like when we were kids, Ouija boards terrified uh, some, you know, junior high and high school kids. Like, you can't have a Ouija I mean, now I guess you can have a Ouija board on your iPhone or your Android or your iPad. You know, you probably just download one right now and do a Ouija board. I mean, um, this is all dabbling in the occult. It is. Now, no one in antiquity in the first century or today can be demon-possessed, demon-harassed, or demonized unless he or she opens themselves up to it. And when you travel to third world countries or so-called developing countries, you see a lot of demonic influence because they live in a terror state of demons and spirits and animism and all kinds of weird things. And if you go to Nigeria, if you go to Sudan, if you go to parts of uh, Asia and remote parts of India, you'll see all kinds of this nonsense. You go to Haiti, you'll see this stuff. I'm not saying it's not real. I'm saying people open themselves up to it. The solution to dealing with demons is not learning and studying more about demons. The solution to demons is staying very close to Christ. It's really that simple. Because you nor I can fight a demon. When I was in seminary, uh, professor, we took a course on angelology, the study of angels, elect, and evil. And he put an overhead, this is how long ago it was, we had an overhead projector. Most of you don't know what that is, an overhead projector. And I think it was a Gustav door print, I forget, but I'll never, I'll never forget this black and red image. He left it up for the whole class. And it's Satan brooding over this sea of humanity of some imagery that either Dante or something Gustav door uh, etched. And, and he, he started out with the lecture saying, listen, whenever you talk about Satan or the demons, know this, he's smarter than you are. And he's the father of all lies. And he went on to explain, whenever we talk about demons and Satanology, Satan can use that information. So this man, we don't know why he was demon-possessed. We don't know the nature of his history. We just know that he was. What's important is that Christ, with a word, solves the man's problem. I would add, lastly, on this point about not opening yourself up to it, I don't think a Christian can be demon-possessed. I just don't think so. And here's my, here's my in-pencil version. If you've trusted in Christ and Christ alone, that he lived, died, was buried, came back from the dead. If you put your trust in Christ and Christ alone, the moment you did, the Holy Spirit indwelt you. No matter if you're a young child or an adult, the Holy Spirit indwells you and me. I don't think the Holy Spirit, even with a sinning Christian who's living way off the reservation, I don't think the Holy Spirit is going to allow a demon to come in and inhabit his temple complex. I just don't think Christ will allow a demon to possess or indwell a believer. Can they be harassed? Sure. Can they be tempted? Absolutely. But the solution to temptation and harassment is not understanding how a demon works, finding out his name, renouncing his name, saying certain chants over it, or watching a series on exorcism, God help you. That's not the solution to the problem. The solution to the problem is walking really close to Christ. 
the way you avoid darkness is to have a nice bright light. You know, even the smallest flashlight will dispel darkness. You cannot give enough darkness to eclipse light. And so if you have a, 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 a tactical light known as Jesus Christ, you're going to do really well in a dark world. Secondly, don't miss, miss the irony of the movement of this storyline. The demons implore Jesus not to send them out of the country. The demons implore Jesus to let them go into the swine. Then we, we have this this garrison demoniac, the capitalist, who he heals, and the region, the people from Decapolis come out and they implore him to leave. And the once demonic man implores him to go with him. I don't think Mark wants us to miss this. The demons are happy to go wherever they get, they can wheedle Jesus to let them go. If we can't stay in the man, don't send us out of the country, send us in the swine. Jesus permits that. The Kapolein area, they want them to leave. We implore you to get out of here. And you've got to see the humor in this guy clothed in his right mind. He says, can I go with you? I know these people. I really don't like them. They didn't like me. You should have seen how they treated me. Can I go with you? And you can see him almost standing on the shore kind of whimpering. Can I go with you, Jesus? Sorry, you go back and tell your people what great things God did for you. And so the movement of the story is, is rich in irony. Don't send us out into the country. Send us into the swine. We want you to leave. Can I go with you? And I think the casual reader or hearer is meant to ask and answer the question, what are you imploring Jesus for? What do you and I wear him out for? And ask and answer, what are you really asking? And a lot of times we, we ask for good things. We're told to ask for anything, but maybe as we grow in Christ we need to learn what to ask for. The last and major lesson perhaps is that there's only one person in the storyline who gets who this Jesus is, and that's the demon. The disciples are just stand, they're just stand by on the edge. We just are introduced to them in chapter 5, verse 1. We have no information. They're not in the boat interacting with Jesus, terrified. All they're doing is they're with him on the transport over. And maybe this is a seven-mile boat ride. This isn't a long distance. Maybe nine. And who knows how long they were actually in the garrisons. 24 hours? We don't know. But they're going to move pretty quickly away from the area. And I find it striking that the eyewitnesses don't like it, the disciples aren't even on record, but the one guy that gets it is the once demonic man. And he's just an object lesson. He had nothing to do with it technically. What's the point? The demons know who this Jesus is, and everybody else misses it. What does that tell you and me about a culture that hates you for being a Christian? What does that tell you about a culture that continually vilifies and makes Christians feel stupid and on the defense and like we're the only group you can go after and attack without any repercussion? I dare you to attack Islam. I dare you to attack the Quran. I dare you to attack a race or an ethnicity or a gender. I dare you to attack that. You can attack Jesus and Christians all day long and what's going to happen? Nothing. Now, on the one hand, that may seem discouraging to you. I would suggest you were made for this. You were made for this. Because you get it. And it should give us both a heart of compassion toward people who don't get it, and also a fortitude to say, it's okay, it's not my fight to win.
It's his fight. I'm just a representative. But I find this story striking that Jesus Christ has authority over that which man cannot control, constrain with human resources or steal. But Christ with the word can resolve. That's the kind of God you have. That's the kind of Christ that I have, that you have. The demons get it, but everybody else missed it. So in a strange applicational so what way for you and me is no matter what the culture throws at you and me for being a Christian, you've heard me say this before, smile at the future. Stand firm. Know what you believe. Know why you believe. Don't be afraid. Don't live in fear. Because you were made for this. And you're good people. And you love him. And you want to serve him. And you want to do the right thing the right way. Are we off center sometimes? Are we off foot? Sure. Do things happen that throw us a curve? Sure. 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 It's his fight. You and I are simply representatives. We're just showing up for duty every day. You don't have to prove it. You don't have to be smarter. You don't have to be better. You don't even have to be politically correct. You just have to be the man or the woman Christ wants you to be. And have confidence where you are and the sphere of influence he has you in. Whether it's school, the hospital, educational systems, whether it's in a business, whether it's in Christian music industry or any Christian organization, right? Because some of the most interesting people are in Christian organizations, right? He wants you to be the man or woman. He wants you to be in that situation. Stand firm. Smile at the future. Don't worry. Don't live in fear. Because you were made for this. And he's going to use you as long as you and I are faithful to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that you know all about us and love us yet. We pray that we will grow in our knowledge of grace and peace, no matter what the culture throws at us, that we'll be able to smile at the future knowing that you are our king. In Christ's name, amen. Remind you after the service, if you'd like to come down and have a prayer team, he'll be happy to sit with you and talk to you and pray with you. God bless you. Have a great week.